Hi, everyone. This is Lamar Stanley, your host of the MA Source Podcast. A quick note about today's episode. This episode was actually recorded late in 2019, slightly before the COVID-19 pandemic began here in the United States. So there's reference to the conference where this recording took place and obviously no reference to the COVID outbreak or economic downturn created by the shutdown. However, the information is still very valuable and a great indicator of the useful information and courses taught at M&A Sources biannual conferences. Hopefully that we can get back online in person soon. With that said, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the M&A Source Podcast, a podcast brought to you by M&A Source, a nonprofit professional organization that provides training and education for small to mid-sized business mergers and acquisitions intermediaries. In each episode of the podcast, we will interview leaders in the M&A world to discuss education opportunities provided by M&A Source, trends in M&A markets, and useful insights provided by the experts that use them. Thank you for joining us. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the M&A Source Podcast, sponsored by M&A Source, the source for opportunity and professional growth for mergers and acquisitions intermediaries and strategic professionals in the lower middle market. I am your host, Lamar Stanley, Head of Business Development and Originations with GenCap America, a lower middle market private equity firm based in Nashville, Tennessee. And joining me today is Monty Walker of Walker Business Advisory Services, a business transaction and advisory firm based in Wichita Falls, Texas. This interview is a real treat because as a CPA and founder of his business advisory firm, Monty has more than 30 years of business transactions experience, supporting entrepreneurial clients throughout the country, and typically supporting small business owners in the areas of business transactions, business structuring and design, business tax planning, and business exit planning. So just a wealth of information, both to his clients and to his fellow M&A Source members. And it's for this reason that Monty teaches at M&A Source conferences and at the conference where we are currently today, San Antonio, where he is teaching a course titled Corporate Tax Returns and Hidden Key Points for M&A Source Advisors. Monty, thank you for coming on. It's great to be here. Thank you. And before we dive into first let me apologize to both you and the listeners. I think the Texas air is a little too dry for me right now because I'm Struggling to get through this, but I'll do my best and keep this glass of water handy. But before we dive into the Corpus Tax Returns course, I did want to first get your background, and if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about your history in the business. I've been involved with the organization since about 1999 to year 2000. Prior to that, becoming more of an advisor in the small business arena, I was in industry. I was the chief financial officer for a private wealthy group. Specifically, I was running what we would refer to as a family office. I decided it was time to reach out and take a step on my own and happened to meet somebody who was a business facilitator, a business intermediary, and learned that this industry for catering to the needs of business transfers for small businesses existed. And that really launched everything for me. I found my calling, as we all probably look to try to do. And now i work nationally with business intermediaries and other professionals, such as other CPAs and attorneys, to fill that void and gap for knowledge on how to address the transitioning of a company. And that's great. And so with that in mind, can you tell me a little bit about the breadth and kind of the things that Walker Business Advisory Services does when they're supporting business owners? Every business transfer is unique. So there is no specific template that you can say a business owner should follow. So I come into the transaction typically being brought in by an advisor, such as a business intermediary, and I begin to look at the slate, the clean 
blank slate and then I begin to develop, what's the best way to transition this company? So often my initial role is to analyze the transaction, analyze the people involved, get a feel for what the objectives are, and then design the best and most optimum way to get the transitioning done. Key thing in the business world, the business transaction world, it's not a matter of trying to identify that one party, meaning a buyer or seller, should win. It's both parties should win, and that's often something that's missed. Both parties have to get across the finish line. So my objective is how do you design a strategy that will accommodate the needs of both parties and get them across the finish line? Completely agree. I mean, we say that a lot at GenCap, that show us 100 transactions and we'll show you 100 different transactions. I mean, they just they all take on a different flavor. That's so right. That's an important point. With that, as I mentioned, I wanted to bring you on to talk about your course here that you're teaching here in San Antonio. It's the Corporate Tax Returns and Hidden Key Points course. So, Monty, can you tell us a little bit about the course and who is the intended audience and who do you think would benefit most from this type of information? Anybody that's in the advisory world certainly can benefit from understanding tax details. The focus of this particular course was the business intermediaries. The reality is most business facilitators are not people who've been directly trained in the area of taxation. They all have the issue. Every business transaction has this issue. As a matter of fact, every financial decision has a tax implication. And with that being the case, it's absolutely necessary to understand the tax issues that are occurring in a business deal. Most important, though, is business intermediaries have to go through this process of identifying discretionary earnings that are happening out of these companies. And the tax return is often a very key source of doing that. Now, dependent upon the size of the business, it may be the sole source that can be used. Certainly, as a business gets larger, we now would find that there could be audited financials. But there is a point before that, that you just do not have good, solid, internally prepared financial data, and you have to look for the best source. And so that can often be, and most often is, the tax return. So this is geared to those people who are trying to organize the data for a small business trying to come up with the discretionary earnings that are coming out of that and how would they use a tax return and how would they find information in that tax return to help in that process. So it sounds like to me the financial statements and the tax returns are two totally different animals. They're totally different. The reality is people create financial statements often simply by plugging in numbers. The QuickBooks program and similar ones, they certainly are great for small business owners. It helps them handle a lot of their own accounting needs. But unfortunately, what that's done is it's caused many business owners to not necessarily look to outside advisors to support them. And there was a time when the CPAs were the sole source of handling accounting. And now a lot of business owners try to do that on their own. And unfortunately, they will take information to a tax preparer. And that tax preparer often will just take what they've put together, which may or may not be accurate. So the tax preparer must go through, review the data, and come up with the tax return. Often what that really means is the internally prepared financial statements may not even remotely look the way the data finds itself into the tax return because the tax return should be getting prepared by somebody who's been trained in that area. And often the internally prepared financial statements are being put together by people who have not got any particular training in the area of accounting. That makes a lot of sense. And then not every business is the same, obviously, but at a very broad level, I know we at GenCap look at C-Corps and S-Corps and LLCs. 
does your advice vary wildly between these, or what are the differences? There is some consistency, but there are differences, and this really does come back to what are the differences between the financial statement and the tax return. So assuming we get past the issue of even being concerned about whether the financial statement has been prepared by somebody who actually knows accounting, we get to the point of saying, we have an absolute 100% accurate prepared financial statement. Well, then the way that that data finds itself into a tax return, whether it be an S-corp, whether it be a partnership, or an LLC tax as a partnership, whether it be a C-corporation, you take the same financial statement, absolutely prepared accurately, and the way it presents itself in each one of those returns is different because the way depreciation example is handled in the returns, that is different. The way that you will deal with cash versus accrual accounting, that shows variances between the way that that finds itself into the return. So the tax code says you have certain ways to handle pieces of information. Each one of those returns has its own nuances as to how that's to be done. And now you have a financial statement that in its presentation says one thing, but the tax return seems to say something different. And so there are differences between the way that the returns are prepared. And when utilizing tax returns to help build a good understanding of the profitability of the business that I'm talking about, the M&A advisor, you mentioned that you got to look in certain places. Are there any common mistakes or areas where you would say an M&A advisor really needs to focus on the tax returns or, or is it all equally as important? The biggest issues that I find is where there's a breakdown between what the M&A advisor is seeing in a financial statement compared to what they are actually seeing in the return. I mentioned just a moment ago, depreciation is a great example of where there can be differences. As an example, an S corporation has a different location for placing code section 179 deductions, which are a form of depreciation. They have a different place of positioning that in the return as compared to where it would be in the financial. The code section 179 deductions are often not anything that you would include as an add back, as an example, for determining discretionary earnings. But people who are using the return and comparing to a financial, many times they mess up and grab the numbers presented in the financial, but they are using the tax return as their source document. So now they've overstated discretionary earnings because they include too much of an add back. So the problem is, are there key points where there are issues? Most of the time, it's just not understanding how the differences have happened into the return from the financial that creates the problem. That is a really great example. I know for a fact that that is frequently missed. Tell us, you've mentioned now recasting earnings or EBITDA a couple times, addbacks. What are some of the most commonly missed addbacks or the most commonly overstated? You've mentioned one, but what are some of the others that M&A intermediaries should think about? Cost of goods sold is a key area that often gets missed. Some business owners use their entrepreneurial desires to lower tax. And as a result, there are often things found in the return that should be scrutinized and questioned. And it creates a problem for the business intermediary. There's a desire on the part of the intermediary and certainly on the part of a owner to drive cash flow results up, their earnings up as high as possible. But it is a challenging thing if they have incorporated into the return 
questionable, highly questionable deductions, because when you include items in a calculation that can be disclosed to the public, now you're exposing possible challenges from tax authorities over things that are in the return. So those are really problematic areas. One issue that I see, it's very common to be a problem, and it comes from pass-through entities, S-corporation or partnership, which would include LLCs taxed as a partnership. The owners want to include distributions that have come out of those companies as a discretionary earning EBITDA-type adjustment. Those are not EBITDA-related adjustments because those items never create a tax deduction within the scope of the return or in the financial. And it has happened many for the reviewed data that I've seen where the intermediaries have missed that and included that simply because they listened to the what they were being told by an entrepreneur. So key thing is the intermediaries, you need to understand what you're doing. You need to understand the issues here with returns and do not take on face what an entrepreneur says. You've got to look beyond that. That's right. That's what you're being paid to do. And what is the risk? Let's say that you did overstate earnings. Why not just throw the dice and give it a shot? Overstated earnings will often lead to a deal not getting across the finish line. And it does not matter if a private equity group is looking at it or just an independent third party. Obviously, this is on size of transactions. So it's all relative. If earnings are overstated somewhere along the way, this will be determined. And unfortunately, if it's missed and earnings appear to have been fraudulently presented, which it just could have been a failure on the part of the people putting data together, that could be tantamount to a post-transaction lawsuit. Completely agree. And we all know that every deal has surprises. And so it's best to mitigate those as much as you can. Get everything out early as clearly and as accurately as possible. All right. Well, then you talked a little bit about when you're building out the profitability of the company from a tax return. How does this all relate to a quality of earnings done by, let's say, the buy side when they come in? Does the information get provided directly, or is this just for the owners and the intermediaries on usage? Using of the returns is certainly an internal calculation, but that same data is being provided to the third parties. I find for quality of earnings reviews, what will happen with the accounting community is they're backing into the financial statements, maybe correlating data that's found itself within the tax return. But when doing quality of earnings, certainly you're trying to absolutely match the earnings stream to specific periods. Unfortunately, in the tax side, it's dependent, too, upon the size of the business, meaning is the entrepreneur overly influencing the way information flows? And that, by its nature, happens in the smaller the businesses are. The larger they get, the more sophisticated reporting. So you begin to dilute out an entrepreneur unduly influencing earnings and meaning, can they decide to use a box and hold a lot of checks and then shift income streams in from one year to the next? Quality of earnings is designed to identify that and get them back into the appropriate period. So certainly, if there are major adjustments going on, that would be helpful for a quality of earnings review so that they can back in and use that information to place it into the appropriate period. And when you're looking at the corporate tax return and trying to draw out the true profitability of a company, are you looking at just the last year's or the most current year? Or do you look at past multiple? And if so, what specific areas of the business are you hoping to glean some information on from past tax returns? Tax returns, just like financial statements, are designed to show a trend. So all financial data is finding itself on a trend line. 
nobody should look at one year and say that tells the story. Now, it will tell a part of the story, but it's not the story. And the world of tax also creates problems not from whether the story has been consistent. It can be that there are new changes that are happening in the tax code. As an example, in year 2018, for companies with $25 million and under in revenue, there are new regulations that will allow companies with inventories to handle those more as a supply write-off and not actually include that as an inventory item. Well, what happened there is in the 2018 period, many companies, their tax repairs took advantage of those new regs, and they wrote down all these inventories. Did not make a change at all in the history of the company. It was simply a tax maneuver. So if the tax return solely was being used and this information was not being identified in the return, the year 2018 period for those companies would look like they cratered because all of a sudden there's a huge write-off. So you do have to look at periods of time, identify what the streams of activities are, and also look at the nuances in the tax code for things that could have changed solely impacting tax, and then you adjust accordingly. And then do you discuss working capital at all during the course and how to glean some information on that? There are touches on working capital. M&A Source has a separate course, actually a couple of courses that address matters of working capital. So the tax return course would not be so much to come into the process or the advanced issues of dealing directly with working capital, but working capital is an element that's in the middle of all transactions. So how would working capital be impacted? It's touched upon, but it's more of a touch upon from the perspective of the data And that helps people then understand it. But those who really want to dig further into that, there's another course for that. Okay. And in the spirit of digging in, what is, as a last question, any advice that you have for M&A advisors that really want to get better at this, really sharpen this skill set? Every M&A advisor should understand tax issues. They don't need to be a tax preparer. Often, the person at the transaction table who is the most knowledgeable, who has the most desire to make this transaction occur for the benefit of all parties, that person's the M&A advisor. The business intermediary is the one. The business intermediary should at all times maintain themselves as the quarterback in the deal. And it is very possible that there is a very knowledgeable tax-related person in the transaction. The attorney, very knowledgeable. But the world of business transfers is to be quarterbacked by the person who understands all of that. And so the M&A advisor has to have an understanding of this so that they can maintain themselves as the quarterback, never hand over the transaction to somebody else. And lack of knowledge in the tax world means you're at somebody else's peril. You have to just listen to what they're saying. You should be able to drive the results. When you're talking to a client, you as an intermediary person, as an intermediary, should be able to spot things that are of concern and bring it to their seller's attention, have them then go out and get the additional support they need to address the issue. But how much better is it for the intermediary to have the knowledge to know to find that as opposed to believing themselves at the peril of somebody else? The deal often can be at jeopardy based just solely on the tax. In the world of business transactions, anybody that's been at this for any length of time knows that at 11.59, before the deal is going to close, they sellers find out there is a tax issue facing them and the deal stops. And that's not the way it should work. These issues should be dealt with early on. And anybody who can sit through this type of information, learn how to use information in the return, learn a little bit more about tax, 
they can deal with those in a proactive manner. Completely agree. And I don't really mean that from either side of the table. I think it benefits all parties to have an intermediary who is well-versed in these topics because, it, like you say, it threatens the deal if they're not capable. And if you don't have someone who can help guide all parties through it, the odds of getting the deal done, one, go down drastically, but also the odds of having two happy parties at the end of the deal are highly unlikely. That's exactly right. Well, thank you again, Monty. I appreciate you coming on. And I know that all of the listeners here will be happy to, one, hear the content here, but also if you want to learn more like this later on, feel free to join us at one of the M&A Sources conference held biannually, the next one in Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you, Monty. Thank you. So if you would like to learn more about more accurately determining a company's operating results by looking at corporate tax returns or learn more about other M&A-related topics provided by M&A Source, please visit M&A Source's website at masource.org. And please feel free to reach out to any of our staff listed there. And I would also highly recommend any M&A professional to join M&A Source and also to attend our semi-annual conference events where courses like the one discussed today will be taught. Thank you for supporting the show. And to find more episodes like this one, please visit masource.org. I am your host, Lamar Stanley, and I look forward to chatting with you again on the next episode of the M&A Source Podcast. Thank you for joining us for the M&A Source Podcast. If you would like to learn more about M&A Source or would like to join, please visit M&A Source's website, www.masource.org, where you can find a wealth of information to include information about M&A Source's biannual conferences. Thanks again for joining, and if you enjoyed the show, we hope that you'll go to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of the M&A Source Podcast.